From high above beautiful downtown Genoa, New York, this is Disaster Tales. Welcome to Disaster Tales, where we bring you interesting stories and personal experiences related to disasters and the issues that surround them. I'm Kate Fairweather. My co-host today is a healer with 35 years as a respiratory therapist, a BS in spiritual and therapeutic applications of music, and as an experienced herbalist. Welcome, Barb Blonsky. Good morning. Good morning. Hey, we have the same color shirt on. <laughs> Is it the same exact shirt? <laughs> no, mine has little holes in it, but it's okay. <laughs> so it's your holy shirt. You were wearing that yesterday? Yes, my holy shirt. <laughs> holy shirt. No, actually, I just wore it today. <laughs> holy shirt. So what are you up to today, Barb? Enjoying a beautiful, warm, sunny day in New York, upstate New York. Upstate New York. And that's where we're going to be talking about today. Love Canal is actually located near Niagara Falls. It's in the town of Niagara. And it's the place where when Mark Twain wrote the Diary of Adam and Eve, he put the Garden of Eden in Niagara Falls Park. It's a beautiful place, but they've had some problems. So, what do you know about Love Canal? Well, for one thing, I've actually been to the location Niagara Falls is a beautiful place. There's a huge park and a lot of development in that area. And so it was no wonder that the entrepreneur, uh, William T. Love, decided that that would be a wonderful place to put a model city, a veritable utopia. His plans were very idealistic and lovely. The implementation is where the problems occurred. And that's what we're going to talk a little bit about. So William T. Love worked for the railroad company, is that correct? Yes, Western Railroad. Yep. And he prepared the plan for this this city along the Niagara River. The canal that he proposed would have housing, schools, parks, all kinds of amenities, and would be powered by the Niagara River from Niagara Falls. The direction of the canal was northerly to the west from the Niagara River. And he was a visionary. He had a great deal of of, uh, insight into what might be a working community. They they were going to have cheap power from the Niagara River, like you said, but they were also going to have clean water from there. He designed an advanced sewer system and a system of pneumatic tubes that would deliver mail directly to the homes of the residents, which was extremely progressive and ambitious plan. Later, he decided he was going to create an actual shipping canal that took ships from above Niagara Falls down through the lock to lower Niagara Falls. So it was even more ambitious. Well, and the thing is, in that period of time, you were looking at a lot of industrialization in the country. Things were starting to really boom. The industrial revolution was going on. Industry was becoming very prominent. And capitalism, of course, allows for profit motive to build industry. Back then, the railroads were making millionaires out of people. And so there was a lot of money around to, be, to invest. And William Love seemed to be able to get people enthusiastic and invest a lot of money in this project, which is great. Because they loved him. Because they loved him. That's that's right. (laughs) On February 20th, 1893, 
Mr. Love, incorporated the Model Town Development Corporation. Now, he did this by going and speaking to the New York State Legislature. He was only the second person who had ever spoken before both the House and Senate at the same time. And he asked for a charter so that he could develop the land. The charter that they gave him gave him sweeping powers to condemn any properties so that he could buy them and take as much water as he saw fit from the Niagara River, even if he took it all. If the falls went completely dry, he was allowed to do that by this charter. He'd already begun excavating for the canal prior to that, I think, in 1892. But I think once the uh, information was out there, people began to see that this was not a good thing for the community in general. It allowed him a lot of things, but not everybody else. The Model City Project and the partially dug canal were abandoned before the turn of the century when alternating current was invented, obviating the need for industry to locate near sources of power. But we'll talk about that part later. So in May of 1894, Mm -hmm. the groundbreaking ceremony occurred and they began work on the model city. So with all of that power and all of that opportunity, Mr. Love began looking at setting up his investors and getting things ready to be able to begin his model city. But the stock market panic of 1893 caused a lot of his investors to withdraw their financial backing. And so in light of all of that development, he decided he would offer the industrial property to investors and the investors and the industry could move in on the canal and and provide the financial support that he was looking for. Uh, many of those were like steel manufacturing, chemical plants, industrial facilities. And then in May of 1894, he broke ground on his project for the model city. So he had some investment in advance, lost it, and then acquired more through industrial investment. And that panic of 1893 actually lasted for four years. It took him a while to get everything back to where he was before. So the groundbreaking ceremonies at Model City happened on May 23rd, 1894. Shortly after that, the New York State Legislature passed a bill to incorporate the Niagara, Lockport, and Ontario Power Company, setting conditions under which water may be diverted from the Niagara River. And those conditions were that they were the only people who could divert water from the Niagara River. They did this because at the time that power company was using Nikola Tesla's alternating current. So this was Nikola Tesla and George Westinghouse electric company. With direct current, which is what they'd been using before, you had to be very close to the power source because the direct current electricity, it would diminish as it left the power plant. And so you had to have a power plant like every single mile. But with alternating current, it takes the current in the circuit and it just moves it back and forth instead of going the entire circuit. So there's quite a bit less loss of power. That means that NLNO could actually power the entire Northeast from their one plant. That pretty much killed William Love's trying to get free power from the river. So on February 18, 1904, the state of New York denied anyone besides Westinghouse Power Company from diverting water, so that pretty much killed the power aspect of the Model City project. And then, of course, in 1906, the Burton Act completely shut that door on people diverting water from the river. 
the thing is the canal had already been developed to some degree. It was a mile long and 50 feet wide and 14 to 15 feet deep. But then Congress really put the kibosh on it when they introduced that legislation to stop him from taking water. Yeah, the Burton Act not only stopped people in Niagara Falls, it was a national act that limited the amount of water that people could take from the natural waterways, which was good because eventually they would take all of it because that's how people are. What finally killed it was the Knickerbocker crisis, and you know about that. Yes, I do. Knickerbocker, of course, the term has been used in a lot of different ways, but the original term is defined as a descendant of early Dutch settlers in New York, a native resident of New York City or a resident of New York State. And then, of course, it developed into a knickerbockers were loose pants that buckled around the knee, and then it became a knicker, which was a shortened form of it. And, of course, the New York knickerbockers, you know, the sports team was named after the this Knicks. term, the, the Dutch. All that aside... <laughs> the Knicks, all that aside, it was a trust that heavily supported the stock market, was heavily supported in the stock market. And in the panic of 1907, the uh, Knickerbocker Trust was suspended, which caused a huge panic and a loss of financial backing for Mr. Love and his uh, his dream. Also, the AC power issue, the Westinghouse kind of monopoly actually on power created a situation where he was not able to continue with his project. And so in 1910, the model city was actually foreclosed on and sold at auction. So that's the early part of it. What we have is Mr. Love wants to have this utopian society where everything is taken care of and people can live and improve themselves without having to worry about the day-to-day drudgery of things like not having electricity. He was very good at drumming up support, but it just seemed like it almost seemed like things were stacked against him because there was one financial crisis and there was another financial crisis and he had the charter that said he could take all the water he wanted and then the state and the country eventually denied that to him so and it was and his entire plan was based on having access to that water and water rights is something that's always been an issue throughout this country you know we have a lot of water But then if you look at like in the West for grazing and things like that, there's a limited uh, supply. And as long as people are looking for water and looking for that utopia, there's going to be problems because people will fight over water rights and fight over that that type of issue because it is necessary for. That's right. And there's legendary water feuds from where I am in the Texas panhandle. It's very dry. It's very high altitude. So there's not a lot of water that stays down here. And the cowboys and ranchers and the farmers used to fight over water rights all the time. So that's one of the reasons that the laws in Texas about water rights are extremely complex. I know that because my daughter-in-law, Beth, she's she's a lawyer and she had to get licensed to practice in the state of Texas. And she said it was almost entirely water rights and mineral rights because of the oil. So, yeah, water rights are very complicated and difficult thing to deal with, but they pretty much covered that with the Burton Act. And I think that Love, his his conception of this model city, you know, that 
you talked about Mark Twain saying that that part of the world was Eden. And I think that, you know, he was seeking that, you know, idyllic place, that utopian place, but that there's no such place as that on this earth. That's right. <laughs> so, you know, it's, it's definitely man's quest, you know. Yeah, it is to, to recreate Eden. And that sounded like exactly the right place. Mm-hmm. And actually, if he'd just been successful, I think it would have been very, it would have been as close to Eden as they could get during the Industrial Re- Revolution. And I think it was a big loss, actually, for not only for him, but for the area, because they were very excited about having this kind of a community. Well, all the dreams and hopes, they don't always come true. (laughs) Despite Disney. Despite Disney, that's right. So now we have to look at the consequence of this failure. And I think that's the, the area that we'll move into next for dealing with what the repercussions were of the failure of his utopian dream. Well, after the site was sold, the city of Niagara started dumping their municipal waste in there, and they also licensed it so that a couple of companies in the area could actually dump their waste in there as well. But mostly it was municipal waste at that time. Well, and the thing is that the, the chemical waste and the municipal waste that were dropped in there, it was a matter of convenience for the city of Niagara to dump their municipal waste and the chemical companies that dumped their waste. But no one looked at the long-term effect of that kind of just wanton pollution and dumping. That's where the, the problems came. The companies that were dumping there were chemical companies. They had waste from processes creating just incredible number of chemicals that were dumped into that area. That property, of course, was sold. The uh, Hooker Chemical Company purchased the site and then used it for their disposal for carcinogenic waste, actually. Things like halogenated organics, chlorobenzenes, tetrachlorothene, all these different terrible things, lindane, chloroform, dioxins, toluene. In subsequent testing, they found 80 different chemicals that were known carcinogens and toxins. So it just got really ugly. Well, toluene is actually one of the T's in TNT. It's trinitrotoluene. And at one point, children could take some of the rocks in the area after the major contamination, throw them on the ground, and they would explode. So those natural combinations of the chemicals would cause a really terrible problem. In 1948, they finally stopped dumping municipal waste into the site. But Hooker Chemical continues to dispose of their toxic materials there at the canal site. The chemical waste that they were putting in there was in barrels and just open dumping. So there was a a potential for those barrels, obviously, to rupture. They were placed in that hole. After they stopped dumping, they decided they would bury that toxic waste, under 20 to 25 feet of dirt. It was a 16-acre clay seal that was then placed over the top of that toxic site, and it was hiding it, supposedly, putting it undercover, sealing it with clay so that the toxins couldn't be released. And then, actually, vegetation started to grow over the site. They started to see the return of some wildlife in the area, but... Underneath that clay seal was a time bomb just waiting to go off. 
Well, and literally, when the state of New York did a report on that, they actually called it Love Canal Public Health Time Bomb, and it was a special report to the governor and the legislature in 1978. But I think we're getting ahead of ourselves a little bit. Let's talk about what happened after the city stopped dumping municipal waste. So the Niagara Falls School Board decided to submit a plan for building a school on the site at 93rd Street. By 1953, the population had grown a great deal, from 78,000 to 100,000 people. And they needed room for those people to have homes and to have schools and and facilities for them to, to function in. And so the Niagara Falls School Board sought the property on which to build the school. And that was where they decided to build it was in that area. Hooker Chemical sold it to them for a dollar with a disclaimer agreement and a warning in the property deed notifying the board of the buried waste in an attempt to absolve itself from any liability related to that chemical waste that was buried. Yeah, and let's talk about that a little bit because at the time, Hooker Chemical was not obligated to make any kind of statement like that. And I think that it was a combination of what you said that they were trying to CYA and dump the property But internal memos also indicate that they were concerned that if they let the city condemn the property, that the information that there was toxic waste there would get lost in the shuffle. What they did was, when they gave it up for a dollar, they didn't let them condemn it. And that gave them the opportunity to make a public statement that, yes, there's toxic waste here. And no, we don't think you should build homes here. That was the second motive for selling it the way that they did. So there were critics of Hooker Chemical, and there were also proponents. The critics felt that Hooker Chemical assigned the board with a continuing duty to protect buyers from the chemicals when the company itself was not willing to take such an obligation, that from Craig Colton and Peter Skinner. And then proponents, people who were in favor of what Hooker's decision was, was that Hooker's decision to sell the property rather than allowing the board to condemn it stem from a decision to document its warnings, which was from Eric Seuss. So there was kind of a mixed response to the way Hooker dealt with the situation. Their own representative said that had the land been seized and the company would have been unable to air its concerns to all future owners of the property. So it was kind of a question about their motive. Was it self-serving? Did they want to just protect themselves? Or was their motive pure that they really didn't want people to be hurt? Yeah, and that's, and you know, you can't know, and most of those people are probably not alive anymore. But, you know, they did make the effort to let the warning out. And of course, they're going to try and shirk responsibility because that's very expensive. Under EPA laws now, we have what you call a potentially responsible party or a PRP. A PRP is anyone who owned the land at the time the pollution was put there, and if you own the property after that, you may be liable fully or partially for cleaning up that property. Now, they can actually, they could have gone back to Hooker Chemical because not only was pollution already happening, but they stated that the pollution was happening and they would have been liable under the EPA federal laws. So we've gotten better. We have gotten better, but it's all a result of a huge failure. The only reason that we got better is because of things that happened. A warning was given by the attorney for Hooker Chemical, Arthur Chambers, and he stated, this is paraphrased, 
Due to the chemical waste having been dumped in that area, the land was not suitable for construction where underground facilities would be necessary. He stated that his company would not prevent the board from selling the land or from doing anything they wanted to do with it. But, however, it was their intent that the property be used for a school and for parking. He further stated that they feel the property should not be divided for the purpose of building homes and hoped that no one would be injured, which is a very nice thought. But because they gave it up the way that they did and sold it for a dollar, you could see that they were pretty much just unloading the liability as they were able to. So in retrospect, transferring the provision of security to unqualified hands set the stage for a failure in oversight and ultimately caused the litigation and toxic remediation that set a precedent for all Superfund sites of the future. So that failure is what caused us to have the protection and legislation we have now. That's right, it is. So what happened was they closed the dump in 1952, but in 1951 is when Niagara Falls School Board submitted the plans for their 93rd Street School. When the site was being excavated for the Mm -hmm. foundation... The architect on the project was told that they found barrels coming up from the ground when they built the foundation, which means that the barrels were no longer under the clay or that they had breached the clay seal and the barrels were showing up again. The architect warned them that this could be a real problem, having these toxic chemicals coming up by the barrel into the school. And that warning was made, but it was considered and disregarded, it sounds like, because they just went ahead and built it. Well, actually, they did respond to his warning and moved the site 85 feet away from the center of the clay seal. But they did use a lot of the dirt that they excavated from the clay seal as foundation and also used the dirt to lay down the foundation for the LaSalle Expressway. And so they were spreading the love around. (laughs) Literally spreading the love canal. (laughs) So... In 1957, the Fair Housing Authority started building low-income apartments there. And that is something that really, that you find in a lot of disasters, that they'll put low-income housing on the, on the most susceptible places to disaster. For example, if there's an earthquake, if you're built on the bedrock, you're more liable to survive the earthquake. The building is more liable to survive the earthquake. But if you build in an area that's been, like in San Francisco, reclaimed from the ocean, where it's soft and it's not on the bedrock, you'll have what's called liquefaction, and buildings will actually sink because the soil becomes like a liquid when it's shaking. And that's what happened in the Fukushima area, where they had the Fukushima disaster? Exactly. There's liquefaction going on there, too. Yeah, and that's, and, and that's something that happens so, so that when there's a disaster... The people with the lower incomes and the fewer resources are often the ones that sustain the most damage. And that's something that when you're looking at making emergency plans, you have to plan for that. So everything was going along. So they were basically short-sighted, <laughs> very short-sighted. <laughs> well, exactly. And, and the, when you're putting up your low-income housing in a disaster area, that's an institutional failure there. Right. So anyways, in 1962, they had a very wet winter and a very rainy season. 
and that caused the seal to break or melt away. And they started having problems there in their homes. They had a black goo that showed up in their cellars, in their sump pumps, on their playgrounds. And nobody knew what it was. It stunk, so they knew it wasn't good. And there was a reporter who eventually investigated all of this. The thing is that the children in the area were playing in these puddles. They were toxic puddles. And they were absorbing the chemicals through their skin. And everyone knows the skin's the largest organ and your absorption rate is very high, especially in a liquid medium. And so unknown to those children and to those families, these people were absorbing those chemicals through their skin just by being in contact with them. And it was altering genetic structure. It was causing cellular degradation and diseases that they weren't even aware. There was no understanding of what they were dealing with. That's right. The kids would come home with rashes and burned places on their bodies because they'd received chemical burns from the waste. This happened over like a 10-year period too. So you will remember this. April 22nd, 1970 was the first Earth Day. It was a national day observed to bring awareness to environmental contamination and conservation. Now, at that time, pollution was getting so bad that they would have smog in Los Angeles that would melt pantyhose off of women's legs. If you remember the river that went through our hometown, we were told we couldn't get in it. We couldn't swim in it. Nobody used a boat in it. It was There was trash all along the, the sides of the river. It was difficult to even get to because people had dumped tires and, and appliances and anything that they didn't want anymore into the river. And this Earth Day was a result of that happening all over the nation. People were becoming ill and there was people that were dying because the pollution was so bad in the air and the water and the ground. And so that's what Earth Day was for. And shortly after that, the EPA was created. The Environmental Protection Agency. Mm-hmm. And I think that the huge thing was the awareness that people had no awareness of the consequences of dumping their waste and things like that. They had to be educated and have understanding of the long-term effect. People were very short-sighted. They're always very short-sighted, but especially in that particular situation, I think. Right. And people were looking at what was going on and saying, I want my children to breathe clean air and drink clean water. And that's not going to happen if things stay the same. So it did raise a lot of awareness, and and I remember kids going along the river and picking up trash on Earth Day. I believe we were a part of that, actually. (laughs) Yep. Yep, we were. Shortly after that, on December 2nd, 1970, President Nixon created the Environmental Protection Agency, the EPA, that was in response to the elevated concerns about air, water, and ground pollution. So Earth Day had an immediate, almost immediate effect. It happened in April, and in December, they created the EPA. And the EPA is very important because although it doesn't have any enforcement powers, it does have powers to find people and bring attention to the fact that companies, or individuals even, are polluting, and they have powers to stop that. I think that that awareness and that raising of the issue is what really started this whole process of remediation for this disaster. Because you had people who were saying things are not right, and an investigative reporter finally got a hold of it. And that's where this whole process started of revelation for this Love Canal disaster. 
things were so bad that the city of Niagara Falls commissioned CalSpan Corporation to study the contaminant levels in Love Canal. That was in 1976. And then shortly afterwards, actually during that time, Michael H. Brown, who was a reporter for the Niagara Gazette, started going and asking questions of people in Love Canal. What's going on? Why is this bad? He took samples of the black goo and water and other materials that were coming up in the sump pumps in the cellars of these houses and had them tested. He did a lot of interviews, and finally he published an article on October 3rd in 1976 that pretty much laid open what was going on at Love Canal. There were people that were having birth defects. Folks were having genetic changes because of the toxic materials. They were having miscarriages. There was an obvious problem there, but you had to connect it to the toxicity before anybody would do anything about it. And so his article did a lot as far as motivating people to get in there and take a look and see what was happening. Part of that grassroots investigation was surveys that were put out to the residents of the area. And in those surveys, they revealed, as you said, high rates of miscarriages. There was nephrosis and liver failures, migraine headaches, cleft palates, mental retardation and autism, high rates of cancer and high rates of leukemia and blood-related cancers, increased levels of mercury in the blood, all toxic results of this chemical exposure that these people were subjected to. And the complaints, the reports and the complaints were made mostly by female activists and the parents of these children who are suffering from such horrible physical effects from the toxic chemicals. But they were largely ignored by the New York state officials and the health department, claiming that these women were just a bunch of hysterical housewives and that their claims were a result of their hysteria, which is really sad. It is sad, and, and but it's also it, it's also something that happens in our culture. It, it's not as bad as it was, but women are often disregarded when they have concerns because, well, they're women. What do they know? They're supposed to be barefoot pregnant in the kitchen. Calling women hysterical is one way to diminish the concerns of women, and they've been doing that for a very long time. There's a commercial on television for an insurance company, and it's, it's in black and white, and it looks like an old 1960s game show on TV. And during that, this woman is giving the answers. She knows what she's talking about. And finally, the announcer says, where is your husband? And at that time, that was, you know, husbands, women had to catch husbands like fish and men had to control their women so that they weren't embarrassed. And so that, yeah, that, that added to the problem with the, with the women being disregarded. I think that New York State, the health department is burdened, obviously, with the responsibility of caring for public health. And when something as large a scope as this disaster was is revealed, their tendency would probably be to say, oh, well, let's keep the panic down. Let's try to avoid litigation. Let's try to avoid creating a public flop about it or whatever they want to call it. So I think that in many ways it was like, oh, this is just going to be more work for us. So maybe we ought to just try to smooth it over and not make a deal out of it which is really the wrong response. And it happens still. In 1978, 
New York State finally, the Department of Health finally decided to investigate because they had the reports of all those problems, the cancer clusters, the miscarriages, the birth defects, also rectal bleeding, sores, headaches. It sounds like you're taking a new medicine because... (laughs) They have here. If you you may, when you <laughs> television commercials for medications, they'll say, "Well, yeah, this will be great. It'll help you. You'll feel better." But you might have you may suffer from epilepsy, asthma, migraines, nephrosis, high rates of miscarriage, birth defects, abnormal inflammations, head deformities, cleft palate, radi- retardation, autism, cause chromosomal defects, high cancer rates, leukemia, increased blood levels, and other anomalies. But this medicine is going to help you. <laughs> yes, and don't forget the <laughs> rectal bleeding. That's, That's right. Always good. <laughs> Yeah, this this is going to make you bleed to death and ruin all your organs, but it'll help you a lot, which is why these commercials come on. And a year later, they have commercials that say, if you took this medication, we're doing a class action lawsuit. So it's like a a cycle thing. You know, it's (laughs) there's no responsibility, you know. Right. What happened next was pressure from advocacy groups. Yeah. Mm -hmm. A task force was established. Governor Hugh Carey, at the time, the governor of New York, he formed a task force, and, and task forces are people from different entities getting together to try and solve a problem. So it would have been the health department and a chemical oversight. Department of Environmental Conservation, that kind of thing. And so those different agencies created a task force to look into it. The Love Canal Homeowners and Tenants Association, interestingly, was also made an ex-officio member of that task force. So they were there in like an advisory and monitoring capacity. And, and so that was good that they had that input into their task force. A lot of times when you have a task force, they don't, they don't ask for input from the community. And in this situation, they really needed to. And then the New York Commissioner of Health recommended that Love Canal be evacuated. He ordered the temporary relocation of pregnant women and children under two years of age from the first two rings of homes around the dump. Interviewers from the regional offices of the Departments of Transportation and Social Services opened an on-site relocation assistance office at the 99th Street School. Residents were warned not to eat out of their home gardens and that they spend limited time in their basements. So they finally realized that there was a huge problem. But at that time, there were 410 students in that 99th Street school in 1978. And so they had 800 homes. They had 240 low-income apartments. They had all of these people living in that area, a concentration of population. And the government decided to, to finally, as you say, finally do something about it. And their relocation, they relocated those 239 families inside that inner two rings but then they left the other 700 families there deciding that the it was insufficient risk for those people for injury. And even though the New York State Department of Health tested and documented that toxic substances were leaching into those homes, they still would not evacuate those people. The first evacuation was declared, the state of emergency was declared by Carter in 78, but they only took 239 people out. So the rest of those people were still exposed to those chemicals and that toxic waste until the second time that Carter declared a disaster and they were, the families were finally moved out. After the New York Health Commissioner recommended those evacuations, it took five days only, which is good, for President Carter to make the declaration. They declared a state of emergency through FEMA in order to fund the testing and relocation of the residents because 
They wouldn't have enough money to do it without federal backing. In the meantime, the parents there were starting to become activists. Lois Gibbs was the head of the Niagara Falls Homeowners and Renters Association, and she and six other people were arrested at a protest on December 12th in 1978. Now, they had been doing things like because it was women that were doing most of the reporting and most of the activism, they had a march where they pushed their babies in their strollers down the street. And they did a lot of trying to contact agencies that could help them figure out what was going on. They were trying to get people tested and trying to get watered and ground tested. And so they became pretty politically active there in self-defense, basically. Which is still something that needs to happen. I've seen situations where the health department basically turns a blind eye to things because they realize that if it was exposed just how great a risk certain things were, that they would not be able to respond or were not willing to respond to it. And that's another story. But I definitely understand that that whole process. Mm -hmm. In late 1979, the New York State Supreme Court ordered the evacuation of the elderly and severely ill. So after they got the women and children out of there, the New York State Court instructed the state task force to continue relocating elderly and severely ill Love Canal residents. At the time, in an effort to reduce the damage, a law was passed that said that they had to have a medical certification that they were ill because of the toxicity before they would be able to be relocated because that was so difficult for people to get. The court ordered, move them without the medical certification. We're not going to wait that long. And they extended the temporary relocation to September 18th, 1979 for the 112 individuals whose physician statements had been rejected. The thing is, it's like the elephant in the living room. You know, there's there's so much evidence and so many people sickened and the demographics and the, the statistics from that area of the illnesses and the incidences of abnormal development and growth. It's like, oh, yes, there's an elephant there, but we're just going to put him under the coffee table or we're going to put a blanket over him instead of just dealing with the fact that it, it needed to be dealt with. Those poor 700 families that were left behind in that first evacuation, in that first declaration, they were exposed for another additional almost three years before or four years before they were ever even dealt with. And there was documentation that their homes had toxic chemicals leaching into them. The responsibility and the scope of that situation is just beyond understanding it. Mm -hmm. I was actually, as an aside, I was actually reading a study the other day that said that they put people into a circle and had them throwing a ball to each other, you know, like a cross and next to you. So they were their attention was focused on that. And half of those people didn't notice when a man in a gorilla suit got in the middle of the circle. When they, afterwards, when they were interviewed, they had no memory of it. So it's very important that the elephant or the gorilla has the blanket ripped off them and somebody points at it and says, look, here's an elephant. Well, okay. Here's a gorilla riding an elephant, and something needs to be done about that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And the thing is that most of the time people are so short-sighted and so, I mean, and if you're ill, you're going to be concentrating on your illness. and You're not going to be looking at the bigger picture. It's definitely necessary for people to come together in that grassroots level and that level of activism that just exposes the problem 
to the point where somebody finally listens and does something about it. Yeah, and and it takes it takes exposing them. It takes it takes Michael Brown and the Niagara Gazette, and it takes the other the other newspapers in the country picking up that story and publishing it, and it takes mothers walking down the streets with their babies in their carriages, holding signs that say, basically, don't kill my baby. And and that's what was happening. And so that battle continued. The battle continued, and another battle was fought in 1981, and President Carter finally declared a second state of disaster, and they removed the other 700 families, and they the cost of relocation was $17 million. So basically, if you look at the fact that, okay, we have to remove these families, but the cost is going to be so great, they a lot of times will compromise human life in order to save themselves some money. Right. And that's why the declaration was important, because it pushed them to do that. And it also allotted the money for them to do that. Environmental disasters are really expensive. And because of the EPA, government could step in and make that, well, even not because of the EPA. That was the way that the government stepped in to fund that. Now, shortly after that happened, on August 2nd, 1980, CERCLA was enacted. CERCLA is the Comprehensive Environmental Response, Compensation, and Liability Act, and it's, it's also the Superfund laws. When you have an environmental disaster that's really big and really bad, the EPA will come in and look at it and decide whether it should be remediated quickly. And so it goes into the Superfund, which is the money that allows them to clean it up. If it's really, really bad, it goes on the national priorities list. And so it skips ahead of the other Superfund sites so that it can be cleaned up first. Right now, there's about 62 Superfund sites that are on the national priorities list. So they when they do the the remediation, I know that my my husband's business uh, last year flooded, and there was a barrel of gear oil that was the top was left off it. And so when it flooded, that you know floated up, tipped over, and got into the water, the flood water. And they came in and they they were their hazmat suits and they had their you know. All the ten thousand dollars was what it cost, and he was cited by the DEC and had to pay for the the remediation. And they cut all the brush and they cleaned all the ditches and they sandbagged to keep it from going anywhere else. And so it is definitely a labor intensive operation to do all that stuff. And that was just a small spill. That was less than less than fifty gallons, but it was enough to to cause that kind of a remediation. I know out here at the Pantex plant, which is the nation's only nuclear weapons facility, when they call out the fire department, they'll call them out for an antifreeze spill. You know, even if it's like only a gallon, it needs to be cleaned up because they're concerned about keeping the contamination out of the watershed. Now here, the watershed is under the cap rock and you have to drill down several hundred feet to get to it. But still, that material can seep down in different places and contaminate the water system. Now, the national priorities list is about 66 sites that need to be cleaned up on the Superfund. There's proposed 49 more sites. Now, a lot of those are probably the result of disasters, though, like the hurricanes that have hit the country in the last year, like Harvey and Maria and all those different hurricanes, because those breach environmental 
protection stuff like toxins are released because of flooding in those areas, like what happened at my husband's work. When you have a flood, the first thing that happens is the sewers back up. So that's why I never go in flood water because it's Ooh, crappy okay. water. Do you but remember the time also, we did though? Yes, I do. <laughs> Marvin Park, we almost drowned. <laughs> we did. But but that water actually was coming from the creek and didn't have hadn't gone through any place that was contaminated. So but yeah, that was kind of scary because we're down there at the park right next to the creek. And all of a sudden, there's a six-inch wall of water coming towards us. We get on our bicycles. We ride, 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 ride. Then the water is up to our ankles. And then it's up to our knees. And then it's up to our thighs. And I'm looking around at you going, we need to get out of here now. <laughs> so <laughs> I think it was close so to chest high by the time we finally got out of there. It, it was. It was, mm -hmm. and we finally got to the driveway that got us up elevated out of that area. And later on, right across the street, Kanawani, that entire part of our community flooded, and right. uh, and it's not there anymore. No. No, there's a Dollar General there now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Built Everything's up off the ground. But... <laughs> so, so you could actually buy Love Canal there, right? Because it's only yeah, a dollar. Right. <laughs> a dollar. <laughs> <laughs> so oh anyways, we've got a lot of sites that need to be cleaned up and uh, and Love Canal was definitely the start. It was the first major environmental disaster that happened. So after CERCLA was enacted, they did a cleanup there under the Superfund program. And in 1988, the top New York State health official announced that 220 families could return to those homes. They're just afraid to go back. There, there's, there was a resident who suffered two miscarriages and whose daughter was born with growths on her kneecaps. And her comment was, it's a fear in the very pit of your stomach and it never goes away. And so those people weren't going to go back. But what was, what was proposed was that they were going to build some more houses on the site near the site, and those houses would either be purchased by young people, young families, because they were going to be very inexpensive, or by landlords who would own the homes, have people live there, but they didn't live there and weren't subject to any residual contamination. To me, that's just not a good idea <laughs> to, to rebuild, no matter how clean they say it is. Well, and I have to wonder that, you know, the the toll or the amount of money that was paid for relocation and all of those things... It was for physical provision for those people. But what about the effects and the physical effects that people had during that, that disaster? Was there any form of compensation provided for them because of the the negligence of the company that sold the land to the Niagara Housing Authority? Or was it just, okay, well, here, we'll replace your house. But if you have millions of dollars in hospital bills, we're not going to help you with those. So does the Superfund provide for any of that kind of of remediation as far as it does the toxic part. But what about the personal toxicity and the personal ramifications of those disasters? Because those people certainly incurred a lot of bills and a lot of toll on their health and damages to their lives and deaths. And what was their compensation, if any? They just got out or or did they were they compensated? Well their houses were purchased at fair market value which at the time I think was around $30,000. It took 21 years and cost close to $400 million to clean that up. That's just to clean it up, though. The people were given money for their homes, and the reports went in through the New York State Health Department. When we talked about the Health Department, I think they set up a site 
at Love Canal. Right. I know they said they had an office, like a field office there. I mean, could those people sue the school, the Niagara board, or could they sue Hooker Chemical? Or They have to live day to day with the results of that failure on the part of those other people. So I would think there'd be a liability or responsibility for them to compensate them for their pain and suffering. Can you really compensate somebody for that? The state of New York did agree to an out-of-court settlement and agreed to pay $98 million to the people that lived there and to begin cleanup work. And the cleanup extended for decades. On a personal note, after we discussed putting together this podcast, I was at a birthday party for my granddaughter. She was at a swimming party and I was sitting on the sidelines waiting for her to get done. And I was on my phone and I was looking up information on the Love Canal disaster. There was a lady standing by the edge of the pool and I I invited her to sit next to me because there was room on the bench to sit next to me. And I was paging through and I was on an article from SUNY Geneseo, their website about Love Canal. She looked over and she said, oh, she says, you're looking at the SUNY Geneseo site. She says... I'm from Buffalo area. She says, I'm from a small town near near Buffalo. And she says, and I'm familiar with that area. And so we chatted for a few minutes and I proceeded to tell her about my research on the Love Canal and all the health disasters and things surrounding it. And her response was really interesting in light of the fact that here I am researching this for the first time. She sits down next to me and she sees the banner and she tells me she knows of the disaster. She said, my father grew up in the area around Love Canal. And she said that he suffered from a very rare form of leukemia. And I wasn't able to find out any more details really about his treatment or whether he survived. I don't know. And so my interest was really piqued because she was talking about something that I was researching. And it was just uncanny that she sat down next to me. Not a coincidence, obviously. And so we were talking and her son came over and he was crying and he was looking for her attention. And he said, Mom, 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 I want to go home. And he was just in a panic. She was talking to him for a minute, and then she turned to me, and she said, she says, he's overwhelmed by all the noise from the party. He has autism. And she apologized for me to me for ending our conversation so abruptly, and she said that she needed to take him home because he couldn't handle what was going on. And as they turned to walk away, my thoughts on the research that I was doing and the physical and effects of all of this toxic waste... I watched her console him as he walked out the door, and I thought of our conversation, and it made me really curious. I was really full of questions about the long-term effect. I couldn't help but wonder if her son and the physical problems that he had were just a legacy of the Love Canal disaster. That's right. And when you have genetic changes because of contamination, they're obviously passed down through the generations. Those people and their children and their children's children could still be suffering because of what they were exposed to. In 1994, a federal district judge found that Hooker Chemical, which was by then renamed Occidental Chemical, had been negligent but not reckless in handling the waste and sale of, of the land to the, the waste and sale of the land to the Niagara Falls School Board. Um, So, which is interesting because if they were found negligent, but not reckless, I think that them putting that caveat in the deed when they sold it to the school board probably saved them from a recklessness charge. So, it actually was a bit of a CYA, and it looks like down the line it actually had an effect. Occidental Petroleum was also sued by the EPA, and in 1995 they agreed to pay $129 million in restitution. 
out of the federal lawsuit came money for a small health fund and $3.5 million for the health study. The residents' lawsuits were also settled in the years that followed Love Canal disaster. Looks like most of the Love Canal lawsuits were settled out of court. So I don't have any figures on that. I wonder what the amount was. Yeah, yeah it, it was, a, it was, I'm sure it was like a series of amounts because it doesn't look like there was a class action lawsuit, but um, actually individual lawsuits. It was, uh, let's see, residents' lawsuits. Yeah, so the residents did sue them and they did get money from the, from Occidental, but I don't know how much it was. But however much it was, it probably wasn't enough. Not to compensate for that kind of human suffering, yeah. No, and, and not even the suffering, the actual physical damage. Genetic damage is passed down through the generations, so you don't even know how much of that you're going to have. So suing them and settling for a certain amount of money usually precludes you from having any other claims against them. So they got out of it. It cost them a lot of money. They were really lucky that they had good lawyers back then when they sold the property to the school board. And so since then, I think it's been a couple of times that people have actually said, well, it's all cleaned up. People can move back now. I would be very hesitant to move back into an area that had such grave effects on public health. There would be, it'd be pretty, pretty hard to do that, I think. And, you know, what are, the, what are the takeaway lessons from this? What do we take away from a situation that was so devastating to so many people? The legislation and the agencies that were formed out of this situation were very good and are very helpful. But there still is that element of personal responsibility and corporate responsibility to protect the, the people and the environment that we all live in. Yeah, I agree. And like I said, that's when the whole, that whole period from Earth Day to the declarations was, was the people of the nation making everyone aware that there were these problems and Love Canal became almost a flagship case for this because it was so big and it went over such a long period of time and it actually initiated legislation that we still use today. So there are some things that we can come away with saying that it was a beneficial for public health Yes. But at the same time, at a great cost. It was so big that it garnered national attention and brought attention to other sites that had similar problems. Eventually, it did good, but only because there was so much bad to be corrected. Right. Well, it's been interesting studying it, that's for sure. Yeah, it has. It's, uh, to see the, the, the effect that it, just something as small as someone getting rid of their waste can be on... Absolutely. (laughs) Yeah. And, and, and there's actually so many more people now than there were then. There's been a pretty big jump in the world population. And so it's really important that we try and keep the earth and the water and the air as clean as we possibly can. And I know there's been attempts to roll back some of this legislation through the EPA. But even if you, for example, if you want to let car emissions become more than they are now, back the way they used to be, the companies that are making these cars are already tooled up to do it and meet the specifications. So it would actually cost them more money to go backwards and let their cars pollute more. I think that we really need to stand up now and say, don't destroy our children's world. Because that is the legacy that we'll give them. That's yep. right. And it takes our responsibility in yep. the generation we're in, teaching them the responsibility to do the same for their children. 
And it's a legacy we can hand down from generation to generation. Well, I want to thank you for talking with me about this today. And I really enjoyed it. And we'll have to do it again. We'll pick another disaster. Sounds good. Until then. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) And I also want to thank you for listening to this podcast. I really appreciate it. Disaster Tales theme music is by Stephanie Cerny. You can check out our website at www.disastertales.com and you can contact me at kate at disastertales.com. Thank you for listening. Today's disaster tip comes from experience with tornadoes, floods, and hurricanes. I have had disaster survivors talk to me all the way through an interview and keep it together until at the very end they realize they've lost their pictures. They don't have pictures of their mother. They don't have pictures of their grandfather. They don't have pictures of their children who passed away. Upload your photos to the cloud. That way, no matter what happens to the originals, you'll still have copies. And you can also make copies on CDs and send them to relatives so that if your photos are destroyed, you can always go back to someone else and get those copies.